learnt a new word today. Atom bomb. Was like a white light in the sky. Like God taking a photograph. I saw it. I can bring everyone back. I can bring everyone back. Everyone. I can bring everyone back. Everyone. Hello there, dear listener. Welcome back to Ramblin' and Amblin' Podcast, the podcast where we take a look at each and every film parked in the hangar of Amblin' Entertainment. The production company started by Steven Spielberg, Frank Marshall, and Kathleen Kennedy way back in 1981. I am one half of your hosts, Andrew Godian. And I'm the other half, Joshua Glenn. And uh, <laughs> we're very happy to be back, because you may have seen on Twitter and... Uh, heard that uh, poor poor Josh Glenn here got struck down with a case of COVID. I did, and uh, so he took a little pause so he he could get his energy back. And uh, and here we are. We're happy to be back in it. Uh, so really, the main question is, how are you doing? I've missed you. <laughs> <laughs> I've missed you too, man. I mean, as soon as I saw your little face when we got on the chat, I felt a, a jolt of energy coming back through me. So I'm pleased that we're doing this again. Um, <laughs> But yeah, man, it was a weird time. The Andy Godian vaccine. <laughs> yeah, uh, and Andy Vax. I'm an I'm an I'm an Andy Vaxer. Yes. <laughs> but it was a weird time. Uh, but yeah, I, I was. Uh, I think I'm through the worst of it now. Um, I'm allowed to leave the house again, which I yeah. haven't actually done yet. But I I will tomorrow, maybe. It's overrated, man. It's yeah. overrated. But I was uh, when I was when I was watching the film, I was having a particularly feverish time. So I was saying to you before we started mm. recording, I don't know how how good my notes are. This might be a bit of a shit show from me. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping that I can keep it together for the episode. <laughs> I am really hoping you've envisioned a completely different film. There's a part of me that <laughs> wants your inner John Peters to have just plonked a metal spider somewhere in the, the final act of Empire of the Sun. <laughs> Uh yeah, I, I I can I can definitely pinpoint the spot where it would fit in, and uh, <laughs> that's now uh, head cannon for me. I think the giant metal spider. Mm-hmm. Uh, did, did you watch many many good films whilst you were like cozying up, seeing out the worst of it? I am. Um, I, t- I tell you what, I watched a few of the Muppets. The Muppets were a godsend. 
Nice. I, I worked. Each... That's a that's a great great shout for a sick movie. Yeah, I, I tried to be a good boy and have some movie vegetables, so I watched a few uh, Eric Roma films and Almodovar's and, and all that. I watched. I tell you what, I watched that. Actually... <laughs> Not quite your classic sick movie. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the one thing that really helped perversely was Jane Campion's In the Cut, which was. Uh, not a, okay. It's a <laughs> depraved, grisly film, but man, that was that was a, a, a very paradoxically pleasant viewing experience. <laughs> I just, you know, when you're watching something, you think, "Oh, I'm in the hands of a good storyteller." <laughs> yeah. Uh, Take care of me. It's, yeah. it's why I think like Zo- it's why I also think like Zodiac's a really good yeah. hangover film because it's just hundred percent, yeah, I'm completely it's a at your very mercy. well told story. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it's been. It I can a, understand yeah. why Champion would do that for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it's been terrible. My my attention's been shot to pieces. I've I've had to watch them in. I mean, I know this is sacrilegious to any to both you and any you know cineast listeners, but I. Uh, I've been so fatigued with the illness that I had to pause every 20 or so mm-hmm. minutes and have a little power nap. I, I couldn't watch anything all the way through. Even even a, little, <laughs> even a brief 90-minute, I, I had to break into chunks, which was uh, not the ideal viewing experience, but, you know, COVID no. is as COVID does, alas. <laughs> Seemed a perfect opportunity to, for you to watch the Snyder Cut. That's got all the parts already there. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Damn all, it. Your, all your naps are already predetermined. <laughs> <laughs> but how how far apart? It's, it's just, that's what is it? How many chapters are in that thing? Six, I think. Six, so just shy of an hour apiece. I think it's six. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe when I relapse, then I'll then I can do I can do the Snyder Cut. <laughs> that can be the vac- vaccine side effect film. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Oh. Uh, but much like the Looney Tunes, we are now back in action, <laughs> and uh, we're we're picking things up right where we left off in 1987 with the next film in the Amblin Entertainment timeline, and that is Steven Spielberg's adaptation of J.G. Ballard's novel, Empire of the Sun. If you're not so familiar with the film, or didn't get a chance to watch it ahead of this episode, maybe take a pause for 140 minutes or so and uh, <laughs> catch up and uh, come back, <laughs> as we will be talking about it in great detail. Or you can simply trust in the fine synopsis work <laughs> of my dear friend here, Mr. Joshua Glenn. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Well, we might be in 1987 cinematically, but within the film, we're way back in 1941, uh, when China and Japan have been in a state of undeclared war for four years, as the opening crawl tells us. And, and, and also opening voiceover. It's a crawl that's narrated, thankfully. It's a very History Channel voiceover. Though the Japanese army occupies much of the countryside and many towns and cities of China, the Shanghai International Settlement provides diplomatic security to the thousands of Westerners who live there. Amongst the British residents in the settlement is Jamie Graham, played by a 12-year-old Christian Bale, who lives a gilded life with his father, played by Rupert Fraser, and Mother, played by Emily Richards, unobstructed by the changing world around them. This all changes with the attack on Pearl Harbor, after which Japan begins occupying the settlement and forcing its inhabitants to flee. In the chaos of the evacuation, Jamie is separated from his parents. He makes his way back to the family home, which is now property of the Japanese government, to wait for them, 
But as food is running out and they show no signs of returning, Jamie must formulate an alternative plan. After trying and failing to surrender to Japanese soldiers and being chased through the city's alleyways by a street urchin, uh, Jamie is taken in by two American hustlers, Basie, played by John Malkovich, and Frank, played by legendary Joe Pantaliano, who uh, listeners will recall as one of the Fratellis. <laughs> one of the Fratellis <laughs> as we live and breathe. It's not long, however, before this makeshift trio is taken prisoner and transported to the Lunghua Civilian Assembly Center for processing before being ultimately sent to the internment camp in Suzhou. Over the long years spent at the camp, Jamie survives by establishing a trading network amongst his fellow prisoners. These include Dr. Rawlins, played by Nigel Havers, Mrs. Victor, played by Miranda Richardson, and even the camp's commander, Sergeant Nagata, played by Masato Ibu. As he does what he has to do to get by, Jamie takes on hard life lessons from these new role models in his life, and hopes that, one day, he'll be rescued by the Cadillacs of the Skies and reunited with his family. Beautiful work. It's like we never left. (laughs) (laughs) We're back. (laughs) Um, Where... Where was what? What was your kind of positioning going into this with Empire of the Sun? Because I do, I do always feel like it's one of these slightly lesser discussed mm, Spielbergs mm-hmm. in the kind of grand scheme of it. Um, it's kind of nestled in amongst his first kind of like big drama, mm. The Color Purple, and uh, a lot of producing credits and a lot of and Indiana Jones movies, and still that one where like no, that still doesn't quite seem to be generally accepted as like the kind of key point in which he turned into a more uh, considered yeah. dramatic filmmaker it just doesn't just doesn't seem to be one that's considered that way despite the fact that it is this wartime based epic that kind of has all the ingredients of that kind of prestige picture that you think would think would kind of allow him to mm-hmm. um, be mo- moved into that more kind of considered serious quote-unquote serious filmmaker mold um had had you seen it before no i I hadn't you've told me before but i can't remember (laughs) this is uh with with, with the color purple now behind us this is i think one of the final uh one of the final gaps i have in my spielberg oeuvre knowledge i think aside from this the only one remaining is amistad uh which is one that we're not going to get to, but <laughs> I will eventually, no. at some point, <laughs> tick off. Um, but no, it's... slot it in when we're in that time period. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're <laughs> into, uh, around the time of Lost World, Jurassic Park. Um, but it's one that I've often seen referred to as uh, perhaps his most underrated and certainly overlooked entries uh, in, in his filmography. It's got a lot of defenders, I think. I don't know if anybody would bang the drum for it being a drama as accomplished as something like Schindler's List, but I think it's certainly. Yeah, a lot of the stuff, uh, a lot of the stuff that he, um, not to get too far ahead of myself, but a lot of the stuff that I think he, you know, perfects with that is is very much you can see him figuring that stuff out in this one, right? It definitely feels like a, yeah, a transitional drama for him, and and I think certainly much more successfully so than the Color Purple. You you, you feel mm-hmm. him gel with this uh, source material more than in 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 that case, because uh, you know the perspective thing is a bit less of an issue. Um, but no, I hadn't. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't. I hadn't seen it before. Um, you had, is that correct? I had when I was about fourteen. Um, Good age to again, watch I it. Remembered I, 
it's a very good age to watch it. Um, I, I particularly remember the second half in the camp more mm. so than I do the opening to the point where uh, watching it this time, I wondered if I'd even seen it from the beginning. Yeah. The time I had seen it in my teens. But um, yeah, I remember it being one that um, my dad very much saying, like pointing at the Radio Times one day and just going, oh, that's on Saturday night. You should watch that. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a nice discovery of this movie, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well, Dad. Oh, we'll watch that on BBC Two at nine o'clock on Saturday. <laughs> set the VHS recorder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was 14 yeah. Yeah, DVD player. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that is that that is the, so I was familiar with it had seen it and again though it's not one I've ever really called upon again as mm. like there are many Spielberg films that I've watched numerous times and this is one that this is this is the second only the second time that I would say I've seen it um, but what about J.B. Ballard um, himself as uh, the author of the source material? But have you are you familiar at all with any any of his work? No, for my sins, he, he's a big literary gap of mine. I've um, <laughs> you don't hate me, man, but I think the my, my, the extent of my familiarity with him is as far as Ben Wheatley's adaptation of High Rise, which I know you're <laughs> a huge That's fan fine. of. That's fine. <laughs> but no, like, he's very much an author. It's okay. <laughs> he's an author. I, I've read interviews with him, and I've read uh, certain philosophical musings of his and essays, and, and that's I've read bits. I, I know I like him as a thinker. But I haven't, uh, I yeah. haven't read any of his actual um, long form writing, fiction or otherwise. Uh, no, have you? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know you have because um, <laughs> I read the book yeah. <laughs> in, in preparation for this. And Got me a little second hand copy. Host. <laughs> <laughs> Took to eBay and got myself a copy of the film on DVD and the book. <laughs> Good, good couple of podcast eBay purchases, <laughs> but um, before that, I, I've, I'd read, um, I'd read some of High Rise when I was much, well, how much, I must have been about sixteen or seventeen in sixth form. I tried reading High Rise and couldn't really, couldn't really gel because it's a strange, str- strange world that he often portrays in his work, and this is quite like a weird outlier really in terms of his kind of whole bibliography and his career because um ballard ballard for most of his um uh, life as an author was best known for his work as a science fiction writer and particularly a writer of uh dystopian uh uh stories starting with uh uh the post-apocalyptic drowned world in 1962 and also perhaps most famously with the aforementioned high rise in 75 and uh 1973's crash as well which was later adapted by david cronenberg in 1994 and which is uh, most certainly is not an amblin film <laughs> oh that's weird <laughs> and uh and an empire of the sun comes in 84 where he's he's a bit older now and he's uh um and it's, I guess it's, I wonder how much at the time it was kind of a surprise to see this um, 
fictionalized account of his own experiences, this kind of like semi-autobiographical work being produced by this writer, no, like who is known really distinctly for his kind of dystopian landscapes to the point where they even, even the term uh, Balardian is uh, coined. So that says something for <laughs> your distinctiveness as an author in the in the spaces in which you <laughs> in which you work. But um, producing something autobiographical, like doing a bit more reading into this, it um, may not seem a conventional move on the outside, but for Ballard, it was something that was always something he thought was quite inevitable. Because even in his like dystopian works, I, I read a couple of extracts, particularly from the, the Drowned World, because um, of how many kind of like references and interviews I was seeing and of how much that kind of, dystopian landscape of like kind of flooded cities and um abandoned um venues of prestige kind of drew on his memories and experiences and images of growing up in shanghai uh during the second world war and uh in an interview with uh travis elbra in the harper perennial edition of the novel that i have by my knee <laughs> ballad ballad said uh, on writing about his experiences that um, it was something he'd always planned to do and he knew it was such an important event and not just for him. Um, and he allowed an enormous period of time to elapse, some 40 odd years, and it was once my children were growing up that I thought, if I don't write this now, I'm going to forget it. And of course, the act of writing it brought back a whole flood of memories. And I, this is very like evident in the book itself and how kind of vivid um, a lot of the detail of um, the world of Shanghai at, at being thrust into this war that kind of everyone's expecting but ref kind of refuses to to accept and then the kind of chaos that erupts from that but also kind of like showing this uh, account of um, an outbreak of war and a very particular perspective of war and through through the prism of a child so even the, the the book kind of keeps certain uh details slightly out of out of reach for um jim as a uh as a kind of character driving driving us through so there is the kind of white the wider context is there for the reader to apply and like how much knowledge you you yourself as the reader will bring to it from the war and then the way they kind of he plays with how a child would view certain parts of what is happening around him and not really understanding the cause and consequence of what it is that has led to these developments that happen. And it's kind of, that's a really fascinating kind of worldview to be taken through. And a lot of the kind of imagery he conjures in it and the kind of observations that um, Jim makes, particularly in the kind of like the earlier parts where he thinks him looking out of a window has cause the war to happen it's like that there's really really yeah it's just really impressive writing in terms of in terms of perspective and it and it is a perspective that i could really understand why spielberg would look at this child child's eye view of such a big event and be enamored with it to the point where um he, he would go on to uh adapt it um but uh it took it took a little bit of a weird path until it landed into spielberg's lap 
uh, or, or more more detours than than anything else. Um, uh, the book itself was published in 1984 to um, critical acclaim. It was uh, shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, I believe. And uh, Warner Brothers originally bought the rights um, pretty soon after it was published. Uh, and at that part, at that time, it was for uh, Robert Shapiro to produce, who does still get producer credit on uh, the final adaptation, and for Harold Becker to direct, who at that point in time had made the Tom Cruise uh, Vietnam movie Taps in 1981, and uh, 1986's Vision Quest with Matthew Modine. Um, so both like kind of coming of age tales, albeit more of the kind of teen uh teen spectrum as it were not not quite to the age of jim is because uh, you should say I, the the book starts with jim um when he's about uh 10 or 11 and 41 and then gets to 1945 where he's uh, about 14 in 1945 um but it was during uh, Becker's involvement that uh, famed playwright Tom Stoppard was brought on to adapt the book for the screen. Um, Theatre fans amongst you might uh, recognise Tom Sp Stoppard's name for uh, being probably his most famous work being the 66 play mm -hmm. Rosencrantz and Guildenstein are dead. <laughs> That's a great play. Have you ever read that? It's a really good play. I've never. I've seen the film. Oh, you? okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I can't. It's one of those things. Uh, it, it only. I can only envision it working on stage. I can't see that working in a satisfying yeah. way as a as a film. But I'd I'd, I'd love to see it on stage. Mm. But it'd be great. yeah, yeah. It's always one to kind of keep a keep an eye out for mm -hmm. whenever <laughs> things start cracking open again. Maybe it, <laughs> go to the classics. And <laughs> um, when Stoppard first came on, he briefly collaborated with Ballard himself uh, on the adaptation. And and when uh, Harold Becker decided to leave the project, uh, the film came to the attention of Stephen. No, no, not quite yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> first, stop, there was one more stop before Spielberg, and that was uh, uh, director David Lean, who is, of course, uh, one of the most kind of acclaimed and celebrated filmmakers of all time because of uh, his contributions to cinema, like kind of like films that really encapsulate the kind of like epic landscape or the, the kind of epic vocabulary of film with the likes of uh, Lawrence of Arabia and uh, Dr. Zhivago and his own uh, POW, POW story, uh, Bridge Over the River Kwai. Um, I, I, have you seen much lean? I've seen some of his earlier. I've seen Brief Encounter, and I've seen his Oliver Twist, yeah. which is very good. But I'm not. I haven't uh, the, the the big epics for which he's he's more famous. Uh, again, I haven't I haven't seen those. So I've got a weird uh, perspective on Lean. Um, he's mm. he's certainly one that I very much want to fill out. Yeah, it's an interesting career, isn't it? Yeah, to kind of go from these uh, kind of like classical, but more contained dramas. Yeah, and then... yeah go to full wide cinemascope <laughs> <laughs> and he's and he's very much a director who you can tell is a massive influence on spielberg's own work um particularly when it comes to spielberg approaching um wider scopes and uh films that have a great deal of scale to them you can very much feel the school of lean coming through in a, a lot of his setups even in something like 
uh, close encounters of the third kind. There's shots in that which are kind of so so close to desert scenes in Lawrence of Arabia. Um, so it, it's very easy to see that Mr. Spielberg was a fan of Mr. Lean. Yeah, yeah. And uh, by by all accounts, David Lean was a fan of Mr. Spielberg because initially Spielberg was asked by David Lean to come on board the project as a producer to produce the film for Lean through Amblin Entertainment. Um, Lean later explained uh, a few years after the fact that um, I worked on it for about a year and in the end I gave up because I thought it was too similar to a diary. It was well written and interesting, but I gave it to Steve. Um, uh, <laughs> Steven Spielberg um, himself was secretly pleased with this decision. <laughs> Um, <laughs> as he felt from the moment he read uh, Ballard's novel, he had, had harbored a kind of secret passion to direct it himself. Uh, very much finding it to be a project that spoke to him on a personal level. Uh, one for his uh, aforementioned uh, um, love of Lean's work, particularly Bridge Over the River Kwai. Mm. And uh, Spielberg had always had, had a fascination with World War II and particularly the aircraft of that era, which is a fascination that he shares with uh, Jim. Uh, uh, for Spielberg, this was particularly stimulated by his dad's stories of his experience as a radio controller and operator in uh, on North American B-25 Mitchell bombers that were flown in the kind of Chinese uh, Burma theater of uh, World War II. So very much the kind of aircraft and the Cadillacs versus mm-hmm, Sky that mm-hmm. Jim uh, looks up to and admires so much in the film so you can really see why this particular project and the particular details of it are something that speak to yeah. Spielberg's uh, not only sensibilities but also his own personal interests yeah. <clears throat> and uh, from there Spielberg hired uh, his Colour Purple screenwriter Menno Mayers to do an uncredited rewrite on Stoppard's screenplay before Stoppard came back to have another pass for the shooting script. And then it came to uh, probably the most pivotal decision of this whole thing, and that is uh, casting young Jim Graham. Um, the avatar, if you will, for J.G. Ballard mm-hmm. himself in, uh, in the story. Um, over 4,000 children were auditioned for the role, um, but it was Spielberg's wife at the time, Amy Irving, who uh, pointed... Uh, a young 12-year-old Christian Bale to uh, Spielberg's attention after she had worked with him in a TV movie called Anastasia, The Mystery of Life. (laughs) (laughs) Clumsy name. I would love to see. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Bale at this point was very much uh, the early early, uh, stages of his career. Um, Although he had decided by the time he was 10 years old that he was going to be an actor. Um, I think when I was 10 years old, I had just decided that I was probably just going to buy a Coke instead of a Fanta at the the shop. I think that's the extent of my (laughs) personal dilemmas at the time. (laughs) I think when I was was 10, my favourite film was My Favourite Martian. So good God, don't trust anything that a (laughs) 10-year-old is uh, and prior to Empire the Sun, he had that uh, TV movie under his belt. He had also uh, had a few commercials 
And he'd also starred in the West End with Rowan Atkinson in a oh. play called The Nerd in 1984. <laughs> <laughs> I hope there's a recording of that somewhere, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this very much feels like a child actor who's kind of primed mm-hmm. to um, get given a, a role a role like this, and particularly with Spielberg already having this kind of track mm-hmm. record with uh, being able to find very talented uh, child actors and uh, getting very natural uh, performances from them as, at, in the likes of E.T. So you, you feel like at this point, if you're a child actor and Steven Spielberg wants to uh, see something in you for a leading role, then you're, you're, you must be doing something right. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, not too sure what happened to that Christian Bale. Uh, I haven't really heard <laughs> much about him since 1987. I don't know about you. No. <laughs> uh, 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 I think fam- fam- famously doesn't like lighting technicians, but apart from that, he's been pretty quiet. Hasn't he? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, I mean, the rest of the cast is kind of made up of uh, established character actors, both uh, American and. Uh, British, the, the aforementioned likes of uh, Malkovich and uh, Miranda Richardson. There's also a very, very early role for a 21-year-old Ben Stiller yeah. in here. He's, he's in a couple of scenes. <laughs> Which uh, a, 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 a beautiful little bit of trivia that I that I cannot wait to talk mm. about is that apparently it was on set for this film uh, in which Ben Stiller conceived the idea for Tropic Thunder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> speaks to the kind of experience he must have had. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I can't imagine it was a particularly smooth shoot. Oh, hell. Although, no. um, saying that, um, they shot it over a time, time span of 16 weeks in the spring of 87, which I think is a very impressive turnaround considering yeah. the kind of amount of on location shooting that there is in this film the amount of extras that are involved oh, huge and the crowd scenes. practical mm. yeah and and there's there's a number of massive scenes that you like i like we'll talk about them in a bit more detail shortly but like the kind of sheer amount that's in them mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> is a logistical nightmare to think about how you put that together so <laughs> i could see how it would have Helped infer onto <laughs> Tropic Thunder. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, when that film was on, on shoot, it uh, shot in Spain, on location in Spain, and in Elstree Studios in the UK, as well as uh, parts of the countryside across the UK. And it was also uh, the first American film since the 1940s to be granted permission to shoot in Shanghai. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the a lot of the scenes in Shanghai. Um, are are shot where um young jim ballard would have uh been in in these streets during his own experiences in world war Two. um so yeah uh, and a massive shoot thousands of extras manages complete in 16 weeks gets it ready for a night for that sweet 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 december award season uh release window mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, it was released in the in the states in '87, um, and it went on to earn just over 22 million in the states, uh, 44 million overseas for a worldwide total of around uh, 66.7 million, off of a 25 million budget, which is okay. Um, I think Spielberg himself 
considers it a disappointment in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, because I, that's not it's not a huge return, um, which a, a number of these Amblin films really kind of end up kind of going down this route. Where yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of money back. <laughs> <laughs> It made some money. <laughs> Didn't set the world on fire, but it, you know, it showed up. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, in that uh, award season, it did go on to be nominated for six Academy Awards, none of which it won. Uh, Always the bridesmaid. Alan Davio. Yeah. With Alan Davio, the cinematographer of the film, who, of course, has previously worked, worked with Spielberg on The Color Purple and E.T. and Amblin back in the 60s. Uh, who himself was nominated for an award, but um, expressed his disappointment at the time that Spielberg himself was once again, quote-unquote, snubbed by the Academy. (laughs) Um, And in terms of the kind of critical reception, I think that may have been a part of why maybe Spielberg himself didn't end up getting one of the... Uh, nominations mm-hmm. that the film did end up getting at the Oscars. It, you should say it was nominated for six Academy Awards with score and uh, cinematography included amongst that, but went on to not win any of them in the end. Um, and yeah, I want, wonder how much of that um, kind of overlookedness at, during that award season does, does come from this kind of lukewarm... Mm. Lukewarm to positive yeah, reception yeah, yeah. when it was released because there, there were a lot of people praising the movie, uh, particularly Ballard himself, who uh, was a big fan of Bale and saw a lot of his uh, actual self in the kind of both in the way that Bale acted and and in in his general look. And um, I've got a quote from him saying um, that I picked out again from this interview in the paperback I've got that kind of echoes a lot of um, how I felt. Alice Walker um, mm-hmm. felt in regards to judging the color purple as an adaptation. Uh, Ballard said, um, I see it as a film in its own right. Uh, seeing a no- novel that you've written is always an enormous, seeing a novel that you've written turned into a film is always an enormously peculiar experience because you are so conscious of a thousand and one discrepancies. You can't help thinking it wasn't like that in my book. There's no reason why it should be exactly alike after all but it was a very impressive film so ballard himself was a fan uh julie salomon of the wall street journal was also a fan calling it extraordinary but uh roger ebert and gene siskel were less convinced Mm -hmm. at the time feeling that the film had uh, inherent tension and contradiction at the heart of it uh on one hand they say it wants to say something about a child's eye view of war but on the other hand uh, it wants to hedge its bet and make it like an adventure film about a little kid finding mm-hmm. a way to like kind of have fun in the war. And I, I think that's quite an interesting critique of the film and I think quite a good springboard into our yes. own kind of mm-hmm. general discussion. Because it, it, it's one that I don't really agree with that kind of asset, mm. assessment. But I, I, I do agree that that tension is there. But um. I'm not too sure if it's something I would I view as a uh, an issue, as that kind of tension and contradiction is something that is so inherent in the novel as well. Yeah, where it from at the, going at this child eyes child's eye view, um, the point of perspective 
I think means that um, you kind of <laughs> the book does it as well, where it's, it is about Jim finding a way to kind of experience life in the in these new surroundings and having to adapt to a variety of different situations and seeing how he can make it work for himself. Mm. And whilst it is a film about a loss of innocence, it's also still about that struggle to kind of maintain to a sense of childhood innocence. And that's particularly expressed in the way Jim is towards uh, aircrafts or what have you. And how, whilst it may seem like he's being pragmatic a lot of the time, he's also just trying to find a way to occupy his time. Some of that experience is is kind of about finding fun in in the situation that you're in, which I think is entirely as as a result of the fact that this is about a kid. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I, I think it's a bit of, bit of a weird criticism to make. Yeah, personally, I, I I'm not sure it really works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, there's there's definitely there is a tension at the heart that that I do think is more of an issue, but we, we can we can discuss that in in a, in a bit, I guess. But I think the 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 sort of the Indiana Jones ish adventure elements, I think they are part and parcel with the child's eye view of war. Because the, even in, uh, I was really struck by a lot of um, the expressiveness of what Spielberg's doing here. I think the the fact that it is a child's eye view of war um, gives him the chance to be a bit less literal, uh, which which is a, a massive help. And and also, like you said, um, that the book does. The film often it sort of cuts the edge, it sort of cuts the corners off a lot of the context. So um, it never omits anything really for you to understand it. But I think a lot of it you kind of you infer through through you know through what is seen and, and, and what, what is glimpsed and stuff. And I think yeah. that's a really effective uh, aspect of it being childlike. But more than anything else, what I loved, uh, what I think is really effective in that in that tension that, that is an issue for Siskel and Ebert. Is that like when in in the scene, for instance, where um, the settlement is being finally occupied by the Japanese, and uh, they're 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 running out of the hotel and trying to find their way um, into their car and to try and in theory drive off to safety, it's, it's really effectively gets across the ground level panic that you would feel in such a situation. But at, at the same yeah. time, he, <laughs> Jamie's kind of uh, floating above it all and is kind of he's seeing it all as a bit of a big game and and there's that look on his face that shows that he still doesn't quite grasp the gravity of what like the earth shattering um, plate shifting changes that are going on around yeah. him and I think that's when that tension works really well is when you feel in your gut the panic that's going on but you see and you can fully understand that to Jim this is still kind of playtime because he's throughout the film before then you've yeah. seen him playing with these little toy airplanes you've seen him sitting in this burnt up chassis of uh, a, a warplane from i guess world war one um and and, and yeah and I, it, there's always been an element of playing and 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 you know performing to him and even like one of the one of the best shots in the film is when they're going to the um <laughs> towards the start when when he and his parents are going to a, a fancy dress party and they're all dressed in cl- as clowns yeah. and jesters and they're being driven by their chauffeur through the city that's being besieged by these closing these Japanese uh, Japanese occupational forces closing in, and it really throws into into um, sharp relief just how ridiculous it is that these people are continuing life as normal yeah. when everything is falling apart it's around very them. Good at that. Yeah, and I think that that the, the, the tension is there too because the the adults are playing dress up just as much as he's playing dress up, so of course he's going to emulate that yeah. behavior as things continue. And then I, I kind of mentioned briefly in my synopsis at the top that um, 
it, it sort of bounces from role model to role model, or he, he kind of tries to emulate behavior of different role models in the camps and stuff. And and that's that very much is I think is the case. Like at, at the start of the film, he's emulating the behavior of his parents, who are very gilded and protected and, and sort of daft, soft Westerners. And then you know, in in the in the camps, he's got to emulate behavior of some less desirable types. You know, hustlers and and, and movers and shakers, and in some cases, the the prison guards themselves. So there's there's a real yeah that that tension and that sort of performativity I think is is pretty much what I like the best about this film really man it's uh, I think yeah. that's the most successful stuff Spielberg's doing yeah I agree because like the the whole tension for me is that like this is a kid having to grow up in a environment where he suddenly coddled at, well, goes from being very coddled to suddenly just not. Um, not really being looked out at all and like people mm. around most of the people around him at many points in this just don't care that he's a kid and don't really yeah. have much time yeah. for the childhood whimsy that he like kind of brings to yeah the fore and like all, all the way he kind of like keep keeps chatting to people and just try, like particularly in the uh uh, the first half of the film where he first gets separated from his parents and how he's like very over the top and excited whenever he <laughs> yeah. kind of meets someone who suddenly like reacts to him because yeah. he's gone through so long with yeah. no one paying him any heed like him shouting yeah. help me I'm British is just not gonna it's not gonna help him anymore because like yeah. <laughs> these people are not gonna care that like you're you're British if anything it's like in the wake of this war that that's going to be something that's really going to make them not want to help mm-hmm. you like like when they're in the midst of like being invaded by new invaders they're not going to want to really assist the previous invaders <laughs> yeah who yeah too, um stubborn and too uh f- 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 full of themselves to acknowledge the gravity of the situation they were in and wanted to hold on to their little piece of um high class life <laughs> yeah like, yeah that that whole part of the party where like like you say that the the film is is very good at like you you see the locals are kind of all scrambling to leave whilst they're all they're driving to this ridiculous christmas party <laughs> yeah. and even even that moment where Jamie is playing with his plane and goes down on he's out out on the grounds of the estate of where the party's at and he he flows throws his plane and it goes over a bank and he goes to collect it. But then just over this bank and literally like <laughs> stone throw away from this party is a, a Japanese squadron of troops just sat there waiting for something. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's something that, that the adults are see, do kind of seem aware yeah. of, but like also just don't seem it's almost too late to be aware of it yeah, at this juncture. Yeah. Um, and it, it the film does do a lot of that, that kind of in that first half, this kind of moments of imagery of Im- kind of impending invasion that we ourselves know, but and we hope that the kind of more adult characters in J- Jim's life know about, but end up clearly um, kind of putting their head in the sand to it in some respects. Um, and like and also reading into this, I read a point of Spielberg also being quite attracted to it because it was a story that really allowed him to expressed largely through visual metaphor mm-hmm. and, and and imagery in a way that he hadn't really really done before and i think that's very evident from right from the opening where 
it's an image of uh, these reefs and coffins uh, going down a, a ha the river in a central Shang Shanghai, and there's suddenly like kind of this image of tradition uh, in Shanghai is then kind of sliced into mm -hmm. and interrupted yeah, by yeah. a patrolling Japanese warship. Yeah. Um. So r right from the off, he's doing very, um, very interesting things with imagery just in terms of allowing the kind of wider context to land before then kind of him and uh alan davio again um managing to construct a child child eye view of the world but in a very different way to et's approach where that's yeah. kind of all uh kept kept down at the level this this is this this feels more about kind of taking a bit more of a step back and kind mm -hmm. of placing Jim in these kind of uh, out of this world landscapes in a way because they're like a lot of the scenes and particularly the scene where they're that you mentioned when they're first leaving it's so mm -hmm. grand in scale and the amount of people that it fills the frame with and the, the like you say the sense of panic that it does construct is really palpable because it's using its uh, child narrator, as it were, in a very different way to E.T. in terms of placing him in, within this kind of massive chaos and allowing us to try and see what that would be like from this, from this very, very particular point of view. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's... Um... There's a there's, there's a, a a really striking bit of visual storytelling I thought was when, uh, when he split up from his parents, he he manages to find his way back to the family home that's now been taken over by the Japanese occupiers. Um, th there's no one in there at the minute. It's, it's been looted and, and vandalized. It seems the the former Chinese housekeeper is is you know stealing furniture with with her co you know um, compadre. And there's a bit when he goes into uh, the his parents' bedroom, and um, I think is it is it makeup powder's been you know spilled all over the floor and everything, and yeah, you see the cogs turning in his head as he's trying to figure out what happened, and and you see at first he sees his mother's footprints in the in the powder, and then you know I, I guess he he feels a slight bit of relief because oh oh she, she, if I follow these I should be able to find her. And then as he follows the footprints in the makeup powder on the floor, you see the signs of a struggle. You see, you know, the other footprints there now with shoes on and you see signs of somebody being dragged and you see a bit of a scuffle there. And it's quite, um, I, I, the implications are, are, are quite uh, unpleasant mm -hmm. and quite quite dark and everything, but it's, it's done in such a, an elegant, unspoken, inferred way. And it's um that that's the yeah. that's the bloody Spielberg that I love in this film the Spielberg that does stuff like that <laughs> and that trusts himself to do that and it's so exciting because there's mm. there's a lot of examples of that in the film there's a lot of that kind of you can feel him tiptoeing towards the point of potentially overdoing it or over over overplaying his hand but he just keeps it restrained enough for it to really uh, register and make an impact like that and. Um, I think there, there yeah. was there was enough of that kind of filmmaking and visual storytelling to let some of the slightly more overt, uh, you know, sentimental overtures pass. Because if there's anything in the film that I that, that held me back a little bit, or that that I did find to be a problem more than anything, 
it was these moments of, of sort of typical late 80s Spielberg, you know, um, sentimentalizing things, which is uh, something that really sunk the color mm. purple for me. Um, but I think uh, in, in this, those moments are tempered enough by, by some, you know, some decent restraint um, and just sort of exciting filmmaking yeah. elsewhere. A lot of that comes from, I think, having such a solid source material as well mm-hmm. that is a bit more, in, ter- in terms of the kind of like the way that the um, narration, well, not so much narration, just the, the storytelling and Ballard's prose does paint those kind of images in there, like that mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. powder on the floor that's directly from oh, is it? the pages in the book. Uh, yeah, and it, it's a very good expression of the kind of like, the, the book has a very good sense of a growing um, understanding of what this marking and what this evidence suggests. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it's, a, it's a very good expression of that. And like particularly for this, the first chunk of this film is very, it's very close to, to the, to the novel. Um, and then the novel itself does also have this time jump um, from 1941 to 1945. So both neither the, the film or the novel kind of take you through the, the days of, uh, Jim kind of getting to grips with a camp and how this community does form, which I, it makes a more economical storytelling mm-hmm. to yeah. then go into this moment in time where, and it, and it expresses more, I think, particularly what Ballard's trying to say about this particular moment as well. Because I think the the second half of the film and the book is where it's the most thematically interesting to me, and mm-hmm. where um, I think where the film slightly loses a bit of what the book is kind of stronger at uh expressing and that is this we suddenly jump from the beginning of the war uh particularly on in the pacific theater and then we suddenly jump to a point where there are rumblings that it's starting to come to a point where the allied forces are winning and pushing towards pushing japanese forces back it then becomes a question of um, what happens. <clears throat> what happens when uh, the war does end, and yeah. Jim has to suddenly leave this world that he's got a really good uh, grounding <laughs> in and a good footing. Yeah. In. He's he's like he has completely made himself an indispensable uh, uh, member of the community. He helps people get things, and he yeah, gets things yeah. in return. And it's like this constant cycle of. Uh, um, uh, helping one another to benefit one another's self-interest. It's just, mm. like where I think the what the uh, community in the camp really instills is this sense of that war often kind of pushes people to be fighting for uh, a cause, but not for each other, not for uh, the sake of um, everyone as an individual of the human species. Mm-hmm. War pushes you to think you have a cause, but uh ultimately doing something quite selfish yeah even if it's like fighting for uh your country or what have you or there's this warped sense of um <laughs> and and it it comes through and having like this warped sense of community that's established in a pow camp and yeah trying to make the most of it despite the fact that a lot of the people bar kind of uh like um dr 
let me remember his name. Dr. Rawlins. Um, Dr. Rawlins. Being a bit more kind of selfless and a bit more idealised um, as a mm-hmm. kind of figure for Jim to look up to. But then there's also a lot of uh, characters within it who Jim ends up does end up kind of attaching himself more to because he finds their kind of like American way of life just much more interesting yeah. and exciting and adventurous and how kind of um within those figures he starts to um not see so much there's a there's a point where he he doesn't see it so much as um just helping everyone out it's like it comes to a point where it's like what is my personal gain to be had yeah with this dealing with certain people and it and it, 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 that is where i think the and particularly the um the book is a better expression of this theme of loss of innocence and uh yeah and i think that's uh it's largely kind of done through how the film kind of goes about the character characterization of uh basie uh john malkovich's mm-hmm. character who i feel like in the film's perspective, it kind of like it throws itself a little more in line with Jim's kind of like idolization of this um, American who seems to be seems to have a lot of answers, despite um, uh, maybe not seeming as educated as Jim himself is, because a lot of their relationship mm-hmm. is built around basically asking Jim to tell him what new new words he's learned today yeah, and help yeah. him build his own vocabulary. But um, there's something really alluring about the way. Basie is a survivalist and I think even Dr. Rollins says it at one point is like um says to Jim is like oh you can you can learn something from him he's a survivor but at the same time there is that caution to like yeah. not put um your faith and your like base start basing a world view over the individuals like that in in this pocket of a community that you have established yourself in because as Jim starts to have to reconcile with within the second half of this uh this narrative is that this is something that is only going going to be temporary and there is going to be Mm -hmm. a world after the war and that is a really scary notion and that is something i think gets a little lost in the film um and is a bit more emphasized in the book Mm -hmm. that life outside the camp is not going to be as as simple as being reunited with mum and dad yeah 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 I think um, that that last point, I think, is um, I mean, I, the the sort of the way that the film reaches its final conclusion, I think the, the final sort of forty five minutes, half an hour, they 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 do get a little bit lost. I think dramatically, it's a little bit less engaging than what came before it. But I think mm. the, the very the very very final scene uh, when you know, spoiler alert, listeners, when he does actually get reunited with his parents. That really works for me because it kind of Bale's performance in that mm. film. It doesn't go for that big grandiose reunited. Yeah. It feels so good. It's instead it really plays into the ambivalence of that, and and you really every, every single thing that um that, that Jim has been through in his camp, all the the, the three different role models, um, uh, Basie, uh, Doctor Rawlins, and Sergeant Nagata. You you can kind of see how the three of them have shared. Uh, in many ways, expanded his worldview to, to see that there's more to to life than what he was raised in, the settlement that he was raised in. And he sort of, there's one point in the camp where he says to Brawlins, he's crying because he doesn't remember what his parents look like. 
but it goes beyond that. Yeah. I, I think on a fundamental and even even spiritual level, you could say he just does not. Under, he doesn't. He doesn't. He's not part of his parents' world anymore. That the place from which he came, the world they occupy, that doesn't mean anything to him anymore. So when he sees them, he doesn't feel elated. He doesn't feel rescued because he's been taken back into a world that is, um, you know, it's 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 not something that he understands anymore. And you can kind of see everything play on his eyes. You can see that numbness at seeing them. You can see the kind of fear. You can see the, the tiredness and the resignation, I suppose. And that is a really... It's a really loaded moment, and it's really smartly ambivalent. And yeah. I, I really, I, I did not expect the film to end on a note quite like that, and um, I think it was very impressive. And uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of it, as, as much as we can, you know, give credit to Spielberg for what he chooses, or how he chooses to play scenes, and what he chooses to show us. So much of um, of what makes that journey sing is in, you know, young twelve year old Christian Bale, his physicality and the way he delivered. You know, it sounds like a, like a basic run through of what a performance is but just he, the, 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 the way he um his intonations or the the, the way he delivered his yeah. lines he's such a such a, a sort of making such clear decisive acting choices uh so confidently from mm-hmm. such a young age it's it's absolutely amazing yeah. like no it's one of those, no wonder it's he one of those really today. uncanny it's <laughs> yeah. one of those really uncanny yeah. child performances where you're like oh you're too yeah. good <laughs> this kid is an absolute professional he came to set he did you know bloody uh you know i, I was going to refer to that meme uh, about knowing the assignment but I, that's going to make us sound very very old but too late i've done it now <laughs> um, but you know, yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's 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 great, isn't he? He's uh, such a talented lad. Yeah, he he is fantastic, uh, and particularly in like that scene, that there's a couple of scenes like uh, that I think he plays really well, and um, and a lot of it is part of that kind of again this contradiction he has of the great respect that he always shows for his uh, Japanese captors at mm-hmm. every given point. Cause even before the war breaks out, he like shows, he, he expresses to his dad how much he admires and respects uh, the Japanese soldiers and pilots. And like, he f- and he even says, he thinks that Japan would win the war because they've got the braver men and the better aircraft. And, and mm-hmm. it's this kind of, and that, that, that is a kind of respect that even persists as he sees these kind of, moments of aggression and violence happen to people that he grows to connect with at the hands of um the uh, the prison guards and what have you uh, and the film does i think particularly a very good job of the relationship that he forges with a young uh, young japanese boy who lives in the airfield side of the barbed wire so you've got the uh, the prison camp and then on the other side of it there is an airfield that uh, japanese bombers do come in and out of Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that that kind of opens up the kind of the humanity of the of the experience a little bit more as well because that is, yeah. there's there's kind of a version of that character in the book but not quite uh, played to to it being someone who's of a similar age to Jim or someone who is so closely identified as being um, kind of like a mirror version of Jim who also loves planes and what have you and having that particularly that moment where um it's after the war's ended that there has been an Mm -hmm. air raid by the americans on the airfield the japanese have told the uh prisoners to leave a lot of them head to shanghai 
um, don't make it um, as a result of the kind of their ill health and the extremes of that journey. Um, and Jim, Jim is again kind of left alone in this uh, kind of weird version of the Shanghai that he once knew. There's the the imagery in the book again is great, and I think the film does a very good job of it in that moment where they walk through the stadium and it's just filled with all the uh, possessions mm-hmm. yeah, of all yeah. the wealthy houses so, uh, with like big cars and uh, pianos all just out there and the uh, collected in this one space yeah and um and it, and, and it is from that kind of point where it, it slightly it slightly deviates more from where the 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 book goes into a much more kind of harrowing detail of how this um point of time in uh the kind of wartime experience of shanghai as a as a city and mm-hmm. in that time when the japanese leave and um no one's really there to order anything that like the allied yeah, forces yeah. haven't made it there yet um the book really kind of goes into like and you feel the kind of like the dystopian side of mm-hmm. Ballard as a writer come through where it has a number of like really harrowing images of this like lawlessness gripping the land. Basie's kind of joined this um, uh, collection of other Americans who are more um, driven mad by the kind of situation that they're in and are more inclined to be incredibly violent, uh, particularly in the face of uh, meeting Japanese soldiers who are likewise kind of yeah. left aimless and wandering in this landscape and the the film d- I does deviate from that kind of, kind of tries to have it in having uh Basie and his this kind of new group which you do kind of get a glimpse at and do get a sense that they are a more violent pair because they yeah. have it that they uh end up um shooting hit the kind of the the Japanese um kid who lived in the airfield and that that expression this is a very long part for me to get to uh where i think Christian Bale's really good at just like because <laughs> it's it is that point where he completely loses his innocence and where the, yeah, the book yeah. kind of i think has it has it more both in that like because there is a moment where he um sees a japanese airman die and it is an airman he has seen throughout his time at the camp but uh, the scene where that boy gets shot by Basie and uh, his new crew and the rage that he has mm-hmm. has and like yeah like, yeah yeah <laughs> there's a point where he just absolutely like charges and takes out that guy the, the guy who shot him and like just wails on him and it's like there's this pure temper and rage in this uh 14 year old kid who's gone from the being this coddled uh uh 10 year old that we saw at the start to suddenly being this quite like um embittered and slightly somewhat broken but still mm-hmm. someone who thankfully has a real sense of um uh, appreciation for life and the yeah the the uh, the preservation of it and yes yeah. enraged when seeing people be killed at a point where he where he is being told that the war is over and is yeah. confused by this uh, act of what is senseless violence yeah, really yeah. because there's no point to it there's really yeah. no point to it at this at this juncture and um so yeah where 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 i feel like that the kind of the film may lose some of the more the books more um 
tactile kind mm-hmm. of expression of this weird um limbo point in time yeah before um society kind of comes back in um i do think bale particularly does a good job at kind yeah. of expressing that same sense of um loss of innocence that yeah. occurs in jim um and the, the the endings are quite interesting to compare in terms of because i do agree that the film doesn't go for that as i'm sure like some Spiel, like spielberg um critics maybe would accuse him more of that kind of instinct to go for the schmaltzy ending yeah and the kind of sugar-coated ending it does kind of side it doesn't doesn't really go for that at all um and like you say has this like quite sad moment where jim just doesn't really recognize him and it takes him a beat to really acknowledge that they're these are his parents stood in front of him yeah, but, uh, yeah, I do think compared to the, compared to the book, it's a happy, it's quite a happy ending. Oh really? <laughs> what, so what, what what's the end point in the book? So like the whole relationship with his parents is quite is quite significantly different because that that there is more of a kind of sense of detach detachment even before the war has uh, erupted, mm. and right. um, to to a more con- Textual point, J.G. Ballard himself, when he was at uh, the internment camp during World War II, he was with his parents throughout the whole oh, experience. Okay. Um, but because of the kind of um, distance he felt between his parents, he never really felt like he depended on them or had to really call upon them whilst he was there. And he felt it made more sense in this kind of narrative for it to the best expression of that distance with his parents and the kind of like feeling like getting by without, without them being there is because that is kind of how he felt whilst he was going through this. He was going through it by himself on his, Mm -hmm. like doing his misadventures around the camp and getting to know the, uh, the geography of the camp and the the makeup of his people as it were. And uh, when, when, even when they're separated, it's a lot more kind of, a confused drawn drawn out moment where his father just almost kind of in the days of the kind of confusion of everything that's happening in the war almost seems to kind of forget that Jim's with him and when they both end up at the same hospital has, mm. he leaves before um being reunited with his father and it's from that point of leaving the hospital that they just never don't see each other again till the end um and then there's a part of it was a part of the book that like brought me to tears a bit because it's when he's just describing seeing his parents and he was and he just expresses the sense that um there was not like there was nothing to say to one another because he could tell through looking at their faces and him looking at his that there was too much between them now even more so than there was because of the individual experiences that they mm-hmm. both had and they just don't really talk to they just don't really talk to each other about it at all or really have kind of a, a moment of em, of embrace because even the book frames it that as he's recounting the reunion it's literally just he gets taken back home and his parents are there there's not this crowd of children at an orphanage mm-hmm. with um 
sad, worried parents looking around for <laughs> their children yeah. that they lost <laughs> that they lost in the in the war. It is yeah. just this moment of just going. I was taken home. My parents were there, and we just there. There was too much between us now to yeah ever really feel like it was a reunion. And then it ends on a note of him saying, "I'm going to England now, a place where I have never been," and yeah. having to the, acknowledge that. Uh, and the 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 film does have that. Expression it does, of, yeah. Like, his his weird displacement of being told, "Oh, you, don't worry, Jim, you're British," and he's like, "I've never been to mm-hmm. England." Mm-hmm. Uh, like he he's only ever known Shanghai, and now this yeah, yeah. kind of warped o- o- occupied version of Shanghai yeah and then being expected to then that fear of having to then move to another what is an even more alien world really to then a POW camp to him at this point yeah in the idea of having to go to school in England is something that terrifies him yeah <laughs> yeah but like that's that's uh that's what I think is one of the fascinating facets of, of Jim as a character and that yeah he's, he's he's a Brit who's never been to England uh, he, he grew up in a settlement within a wider context that he'd never really got to know. He's got this respect for the Japanese soldiers and he has this admiration for sort of the American way of life. So he's kind of got this um, globalist, uh, you know, humanistic perspective on, on the world, which kind of allows him yeah. to establish that network and thrive. And and he's he's... That's why he's such a good vessel, I think, for a film that's about a, a, a greater conflict in, in that he just fundamentally, he does not understand, I, I think he doesn't understand the idea of war, the idea of national identity, the idea that two, you know, two forces, two nations could be so opposed as to, you know, wage war on each other. I think that's a really, um, that's a really, he's a, a great vessel for that idea. And I think... Something that, that plays into that and, and, and that I really sort of want to delve into with you is the idea of faith that the film raises. Because there's, there's that part, mm. uh, I think, I think is it by the pool at the very yeah. start? Or, or uh, there's a point when, when Jim says to his dad, um, I've become an atheist, um, which is kind of uh, in the moment a bit of... Yeah, it's at the pool. Bit of a, yeah, yeah. But yeah. a bit, bit of a tossed off line. But I, I guess you can sort of infer from that that he's slightly, slightly... Uh, falling out of of love with the life that he uh, has been raised in, sort of drifting away from that a little bit, and you do get the sense that in being in the camp, when everyone has all all, all sort of airs and graces completely stripped away from from them, from them, all pomp and ceremony is gone, and kind of a lot in in many ways, national signifiers are moot because everyone is equally as codependent. Whether it's him, whether it's the doctors, whether it's the American. Uh, hustler types or whether it's even you know uh, Nagata who's the Japanese camp commander he is as much a part of the yeah. network of trade in the camp as anybody else is and that, that really kind of that seems to like you say he, he's in some respects institutionalized because he, he learns to thrive in that environment to the point that anything afterwards could be quite scary but I think it's a kind of rebirth for him and it does give him a degree of faith it gives him faith, I think, in people beneath any kind of superficial national identity. Um, and I think the 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 heartbreaking um, the heartbreaking cap to the idea that the sort of the the maybe my favourite single moment in the film, I think the most effective moment in the film, um, this kind of his ultimate loss of faith is when they're in that big stadium, having finally been released mm-hmm. or released is kind of a 
putting it too lightly, abandoned by the the, the Japanese guards. And, and and when they when they do find that stadium full of the old trinkets from the previous life, um, the uh, uh, Miranda Richardson, whose character's name I can't remember off the top of my head, Mrs. Victor, who's been yes, who's who's been very very ill for a while, and she she finally dies um, by his side and. He looks up in the sky and sees this great white flash, and and in that moment, he mm-hmm. to him that's kind of a religious sign. He thinks that's her soul going up to heaven, but of course, contextually, the viewer knows, and it's later said in the film that that's the bombing of Nagasaki. That's the the atomic bomb, which um, in in a lot of media, yeah, that's quite of, a crushing moment. Yeah, yes. yeah, the, the the moment that's kind of humanity's ultimate. That is, I think Spielberg even said, or maybe it was Ballard who said, that is humanity's loss of innocence. The moment when they drop the atom yeah. bomb on their fellow man, and and I just something so you know cruelly beautiful in this boy who's finally found a degree of faith, who thinks that he's seen the ultimate symbol of you know religious transcendence. When what actually he has seen yeah. is like the, the birth of the ultimate evil in man, and you know what? What I think um, in 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 recent cinematic memory, I think the image of the the nuclear bomb that sticks in mind the most is Episode Eight of Twin Peaks: The Return. You know when it kind of shows the beginning mm. of the of of the evil at the heart of Twin Peaks it was created when you know we dropped the atom bomb. Um, so yes, yeah. I kind I kind of. Uh, bloody COVID, I've kind of <laughs> lost the thread of the point I was going to make there. Oh, yes, no, but that is, I think that is kind of the ultimate loss of faith for for this character in, in seeing yeah, that in spite, you know, in spite of it all, um, this level of pit, pitiless, pitless cruelty is still possible. And then, of course, right after that, you have the moment when his, uh, when, the, when the, the young Japanese pilot is killed completely arbitrarily, completely randomly by the... Um, the looting Americans, and it just really drives home the idea of you know, life is cheap. The value for life that that he has is 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 not something that's shared by his fellow man. Um, so like, where, yeah, I guess yeah, where 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 does he belong? Like, what is there to believe in if 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 that's all there is on the other side? You know, which is um something that kind of again I, I keep coming back to the word ambivalence but that's something that level of ambivalence is something spielberg really gets his teeth into i think in the early 21st century and mm-hmm. i was gonna say because i do think even even spielberg can't quite he still quite can't quite completely surrender himself mm. to that um what is an ultimately quite um bleak and um cynical view at the end um because he still kind of hat like he does restructure the reunion to be something a bit more um driven by emotion by having it be mm-hmm. in a sea of other lost children and parents desperately looking for their their children and having the kind of like final shot be one kind of focusing on jim's eyes and having him kind of go from like this quite blank expression to kind of closing his eyes and feeling like he's being comforted and his back in the right arms after mm-hmm. kind of literally trying on various different pairs of shoes to see what fits and it never mm-hmm. really quite yeah. fitting but yeah i do think by and large it is quite a successful adaptation of the book and it is not something that i think is as uh 
kind of ends up being as kind of uh, rubber rubber tipped as mm-hmm. I was perhaps expecting it to yeah, be after yeah. having read the book um, yeah. ahead of time. I think it it still very much carries with it that um, and and like you say, particularly in that in that moment with the with the atom bomb mm-hmm. um, being that as that as that crucial moment in both that kind of, like you say for Jim on a personal level and his interpretation of the world and also on a wider on a wider level for what that means for kind of everybody's idea of uh, humanity and faith yeah it, it, it's, it's a it's a no turning back point really isn't it absolutely absolutely it is yeah and it's uh hauntingly realized in this film mm-hmm. um so to, to turn a question back on you that you asked me at the end of our Colour Purple episode, uh, I think we'd, we'd, we'd both agree that this is a, a, a good film on its own terms. Um, do, do, you, do you think that it's yeah. a, a good adaptation of this source? I would say so. I would say so. And I, I think that's largely because of how I think it's what is so special about the book is this very particular perspective, but some, a perspective that clearly means a lot to a lot of people that would have been in a similar position be that in shanghai or in parts of europe or or what have you um but also just of how um how different that how how much that kind of perspective and this narrative allows you to completely put uh, an audience or a reader into a different um different view of of war that's not like previously not really mm-hmm. kind of covered in uh, POW movies or what have you to really see what this world would have been like through the eyes of a kid and that I think they're both ri- for the most part really really convincing with yeah. it um, and for for the book a lot of that comes down to Ballard's use of um, use of perspective and uh, his kind of Jim's own limited understanding of a lot of what's going on around him and, the, and this kind of collection of characters that uh, he does form a connection with in the camp. Something I think the film slightly does lose a little bit by having a bit too much focus on um, Basie, uh, um, on Malkovich's Basie and this kind of more idolised um, view that um, Jim has towards him in the film. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think, that, I think they're both very worthwhile expressions of a perspective of war that previously was not had not really been explored explored and i think yeah even even now i struggle to think of uh many other narratives like it there, there, there's a couple of elements that we've touched upon um that wouldn't mind talking up in a, mm-hmm. a bit more but focus detail um one of those is the kind of supporting characters because i know a lot a lot of the kind of other cast members in this uh, miranda richardson included have talked about how there's a lot of what they did not in the movie because and like like I said that the book does have this quite extensive committed moment moments to a lot of the a lot of the other people in the camp and the film I, I mean it has to economically because it's already at 140 minutes yeah I'm sure it was quite tough to have to decide to cut a lot of these moments um but I, I I'm particularly um, more intrigued by what you make of uh, John Malkovich's Basie because he he does feel like the kind of the second lead, as it were, and 
again kind of uh, gives yeah. me uh going back to our american tale episode it gives me um a uh, honest john P- in pinocchio sort of vibe uh initially <laughs> this, this yeah. kind of hustler showing the, yeah showing yeah the, how, how the, <laughs> this naive kid how to work in the world and also how basically himself can use this kid to his own advantage um yeah uh, and malkovich is, is always is always a always a welcome pre- presence in something but uh what did you make of him and the character in, mm. in this i think there was something um like ripped from classic american literature that's uh, kind of like mark twainy john steinbecky about him he felt he had a kind of dust bowl quality to him you know it, like that sort of all-american chancer um i think i mean malkovich is is, is malkovich he's always, he's always good isn't he i think the best thing about this performance is the uh the introduction i think he's got one of the all-time great spielberg character introductions when when uh, joey pants first takes uh jim to his hideaway to his lair to meet meet the boss and you don't see his full face for a while you sort of glimpse him in silhouette you glimpse the, the, the his, yeah. his chin beneath his hat you see you know uh this sort of piecemeal introduction and i think that's such a great way of building up this um uh uh sort of mythos to the character obviously this is how jim is seeing him this is the beginning of jim's sort of infatuation with that way of life um but it's a really really effective really cool way to introduce him um yeah beyond that i suppose i mean i I, malkovich he he can ham can't he i i think he he keeps it tapped down quite well in this role uh he, he sort of fits in with the greater fabric of the film around him I do, I do think you spend so much time with him in the camp, like you say, at the expense of others that it was, I think in, in places it was a bit lost on me, the importance of someone like, you know, Dr. Rawlins or someone like the, you know, the, the, the camp, um, uh, the, um, the camp commander. I don't th- I think those relationships, yeah. the importance of those relationships does suffer a bit because of just how much time you spend with, uh, with him and i thought as well i thought he was being set up to die you know after he gets a beating um from from the commander yeah. i thought he was being set up to die because the the mosquito net is established as a, a motif for the soon to be dead in, in the infirmary um so i thought I, w- I was kind of waiting for him to die and, and for that to be one of the big character moments for um for jim but now he just he, 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 he when he finds out that his stuff was taken by the other americans he just gets up out of bed and goes back to the barracks <laughs> and he's uh he's, yeah. I guess, <laughs> he's all right yeah <laughs> but no i i yeah. um I, I i i i don't know yeah it, i mean he, it, it was it was just a sort of a good a good sort of middle middle of the road i guess malkovich performance really i i not one yeah you know not one that i would particularly write home about but you know not not as bad as as, as i have seen him in other things <laughs> what did you think <laughs> yeah it's it, it is one that kind of keeps his his interest his interests uh mm-hmm. kind of tempered as it were and it, it, it i i feel feel like it must be more of a byproduct of an american making this film and having this kind of uh there's a slight jing- jinganism that kind of mm-hmm. comes through a little bit in um it's kind of appreciate like the the way that kind of jim ends up kind of looking up to american culture and when um aid does eventually come uh in the form of the these capsules that the u.s army uh, uh the <laughs> yeah. u.s 
Air Force are dropping down, filled with tin goodies and magazines, and then also when they are the ones who he stumbles across, and they lead him eventually back home. Um, but I, I do think there are, there are some moments where it uses the character quite interestingly as a kind of surrogate parental figure mm-hmm. from where it comes from. Again, this kind of Jim's desperate need to please and then feeling a bit of a void when he doesn't get much in a, a reciprocation from Basie, who's like particularly initially set out, set up as just someone who sees how he can use people to his own benefit and it becomes a bit more of a, uh, it becomes a bit more uh, open to Jim when it, when they are kind of just in the one, in the one camp and in the one position and he's, I, I think he is used to serve as a good reminder of like, even if you, because, because Jim, I feel sees Basie as this kind of um, rebel figure in, in amongst all, all this, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, regimented order and uh, as someone who's kind of like uh, sitting on a on a pile of goodies of magazines of posters of books of radios and what have you and um, sees him as someone to emulate because he looks like he's completely worked this whole thing out for him mm-hmm. and it and it does lead to quite a good moment where it all will literally just go like that and it's all gone and stripped away by the very people that you thought yeah. also looked up to him and what have you. Um, so, so he is a good expression. He is used as a good expression of uh, kind of, uh, I guess, uh, hubris and, and just kind of how um, another element of Jim's innocence being lost because Basie himself is kind of living up to this kind of a whimsical image for himself of a kind of faux sense of control mm-hmm. in this uh, environment where he literally does have none. <laughs> yeah, really. yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you when it all boils down, yeah, down to it. Um, I think a, yeah. a large part as well is just how individualism doesn't work. You know, it's a very collectivist yeah. movie, isn't it? it? It's surprisingly un uh, <laughs> un American in so <laughs> in that respect. It's <laughs> that character in that moment does embody just how much you know. There's there's no there's no honor and loyalty amongst a bunch of individualists, and um, yeah, you know, isn't going to fly. Which I think is like yeah, it's a core, it's a good good core theme of the of both sides in the narrative that I think do come through. Yeah, um, and and I I do think it's a shame that you do kind of lose a lot of those connections. You still got some of the connection with. Miranda Richardson's yeah, Miss Vincent almost being close to kind of being this kind of only um, solid kind of figure of uh, uh, both motherhood and also on a broader sense of femininity in Jim's young life. Um, but again, she does feel doesn't quite feel like she's uh, fleshed out as much as like. Um, one could imagine the um a version of this once had her yeah yeah um yeah and that that goes to a, a, a few a few characters here like dr rollins and also uh leslie phillips is on the car amongst the cast as an elderly uh gentleman in the in the camp 
whose name escapes him right now, but he does. He was also another actor. Expressed that there was a lot of a lot of what he did just isn't there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I think is a shame. <laughs> yeah, it must be a hard line to unless you want to go full Terence Malick in the Thin Red Line and, and sort of. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've never seen the Thin Red Line, but from what I hear, everyone thought incredible. <laughs> yeah, but that film has a ludicrous rogues gallery of of late nineties talent and and. It's essentially like a, a scene a piece or a fragment of a scene a piece because he he shoots so much yeah. footage you could make about twenty five movies from what he shoots and he kind of finds it in the <laughs> edit. Spielberg's never been that kind of filmmaker, but I, d- I mean, you can kind of see this being made as a miniseries now, can't you? As opposed to a a movie, mm. you could you could you could get like a ten part Amazon Prime miniseries for sure. Uh, we have had a tweet in uh, in regards to our discussion on Empire of the Sun. Woo-hoo! It's from uh, Craig Brockman at CS Brockman on Twitter, um, who uh, shared his thoughts to say that he thinks the film is an underrated masterpiece and one of his favourite John Williams scores, which brings Ooh. me to a point that I did want to talk about because uh, the John Williams score is one I I have a weird weird feeling towards. <laughs> okay, and I I. I think that comes from, uh, I think in isolation, it is a really, really beautiful score. Mm-hmm. There's a, uh, The main theme, I think, is gorgeous. And the, the kind of means in which he modulates it through um, kind of like this very kind of soft-tempered piano and also can raise it to be this kind of grand, uh, triumphant um, main theme to go along with the idea of a Cadillac of the sky is... Um, always uh always something that john williams is incredibly good at and it's no exception here but uh it's the way it's kind of utilized in moments within within the actual film itself listening it to isolation i think is great but in the film itself there are moments where that kind of theme kind of drives kind of and this is where i feel the slight over over egging of the spielberg pudding comes in yeah. is in his use of the kind of bigger moments of the score at parts where and where you feel like the the action on the screen is kind of doing enough anyway yeah and is slightly ruining the 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 more subtle nature of both spielberg's own imagery and just the context of that imagery itself yeah uh but but what are your thoughts? No, I mean, <laughs> John Williams' contribution. <laughs> now, you, you, I, I completely agree. It's um, there, there are moments when it works really nicely with what we're seeing, but I think a bit too often, it just gives Spielberg an excuse to to get that ladle and and dip it right into his vat of syrup and and pour it over the thing. And um, I think on the whole, there were fewer moments that, of, of that kind of thing than I expected, but there was still enough that it almost, almost soured it. I think, um, but no, I mean, you know, they 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 weren't frequent enough to I think really tip this thing over. But yeah, I mean, I yeah. I, I can't really uh, put it better than you you just did. I think that yeah, I think that the, the, there's an unfortunate correlation between moments of prominent score and moments where you just feel that he's. He's, he's ladling on a bit too thick, you know. Um, so it's, yeah. it's, it's a weird example of, of very good work in just a wrong context a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. Um, but thank you, Craig. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you for <laughs> thank, thank you for tweeting for your your thoughts, and particularly for 
tweeting a thought that is uh, that uses a good springboard for one of the elements that we yeah, haven't yeah. Uh, gotten ra- gotten round to in this discussion yet because I is I I will always bring up um, the question of what did you think of the John Williams score <laughs> if the film has been scored by John Williams? Have you got your John Williams uh, and, and, T-shirt on today? Not on today, no. I should have. I don't think Empire of the Sun's included in the credits, so ah, maybe that's yeah, why I did. But... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to hell with it then in that case. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So uh, unless you have any other thoughts to say, I think we can let uh, Emperor of the Sun set at this, oh, uh, at this juncture. Oh, yeah. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. It's just nice to see you and talk to you, man. I don't want to let this this end. But... Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, it's all right. We, we've got some housekeeping to get through first. Oh, <laughs> delicious housekeeping! Knock, 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 knock. Delicious, delicious housekeeping. <laughs> but uh, before before we jump into that, a uh, little one line summary for you, from yourself on your on your overall impressions of Empire of the Sun. Um, it's a thoroughly uh, sturdy piece of dramatic filmmaking i think it's a logical um a logical evolutionary link between color purple and schindler's list and it's not as accomplished very good point it's not as accomplished and uh well-rounded and searing as schindler's list is but i think it certainly sees him working through a lot of the things that made the color purple such a um certainly in my eyes a a a dud was that that kind of could be a sentence with little commas applied but yes, what, 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 what about yours, man? What's your uh, summation? I agree. I think it it operates quite nicely as, in terms of placement for Spielberg, it is one that I think, particularly in those three films, I think it shows a really interesting trajectory. Um, I do think it probably is a little underrated yeah. in the grand scheme of it because I think some of the um, set pieces and the moments of scale and... Um, the moments of Alan Dav- Davio's uh, cinematography, and this is the last time that they worked together, so I was paying particular attention to how, how nice it looked. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, it's it, yeah, it it's an incredibly impressive feat of both scale and intimate imagery that, for the most part, gets uh, a lot of the thematic concerns and thematic meat of the um, prose. Uh, that ballad ballad wrote and puts it up on screen, albeit still through that Spielberg sausage maker. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the tastier sausage this time around. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so yes, I I, I highly recommend yeah. Empire. Oh, I think it gets a, gets a, the, the rambling recommendation. The, the ra- <laughs> a rambling wreck. Rambling wreck. <laughs> oh, the right old rambling wreck. <laughs> hey, tell me about it, pal. <laughs> this COVID. Ooh, I hope oh. that was, you know, I hope that was coherent. I, 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 do, do I think so. <laughs> I think so. I, I always find whenever I record these, I go into this weird state where I just have no idea if it sounds good <laughs> until I start listening back to it. So, so at this juncture, I don't know. <laughs> so tell us, listeners, tweet us at them. Um, so yes, go on. Uh, <laughs> uh, in our in our next episode, we'll be um, we'll be we'll be heading more back into the kind of 
traditional emblem mold i think it's fair to say mm-hmm. with the family family sci-fi comedy drama uh directed by matthew robbins in 1987 batteries not included do you not pronounce the um, asterisk like... oh oh <laughs> asterisk batteries not included <laughs> i wonder i i thought as i was typing this bit out this afternoon and i didn't put the asterisk <laughs> I had the same thought of like, if I don't say this with the asterisk, Josh is probably going to say something. So, but he might not. Maybe he won't. So I won't say it with the asterisk. And lo and behold, <laughs> you know me well. So Matthew Robbins family sci-fi comedy asterisk batteries not included. Not part of the asterisk and obelisk uh, cinematic universe. No. <laughs> Um, if you would like to watch uh, this lovely family film along with us and don't happen to have the film to disc, um, you can. it is available to any of you who have a Prime Video subscription. Um, but alternatively, you can also rent or buy the film digitally from Amazon, Apple TV, Chile, Google Play, Microsoft Store, Sky Store and YouTube. Uh, and if you've got any thoughts you want to share on Asterix, batteries not included, then please do at us uh, on Twitter at Ramblin' Amblin and share your thoughts on uh, Asterix, batteries not included. Uh, or you can also email us at ramblinaboutamblin at gmail.com. Mm. Dot com. Oh, boy. Uh, I'll say I'll say I'll say that again with more certainty at ramblinaboutamblin <laughs> at gmail.com with any thoughts you might have on the uh, late eighties classic question mark. I haven't seen it in a long time, so I couldn't say. Uh aspects <laughs> not included. Mm-hmm. I feel, <laughs> feel like when you went into that, you forgot how many ats you were about to say. So then you were saying a lot of asterisks, bat- battery not included, at rambling, rambling. <laughs> email at <laughs> rambling about ambling at. <laughs> oh, delirious. I'm s- asterisks not included. <laughs> I'm seeing giant metal spiders all over the shop. I need to go have a lie down. <laughs> it's your natural state of being. Oh. <laughs> Well, Joshua, it has been an absolute delight to get back on the the old video call with you. Um, I'm I'm very glad to to be to to be catching up with you and to see that you're 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 very much on 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 the way back to being your fuller self, even if the (laughs) even if Nan again. the, metal, the giant metal spiders encroach on your space, but um, yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's been a pleasure, mate. Uh, I miss I missed this terribly last week, and uh, oh, I'm pleased that we're back. Yeah, well, you you still take it easy, man. Get your cozy on up with Asterix batteries not included. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> I feel like it's more of a sick day sick day film oh, than totally. uh, <laughs> in the cut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and thank you once again uh dear listeners we hope that you've had a good time with us and uh also equally as enjoyed to be back at it and um we look forward to welcoming you back again for our next episode on asterix batteries not included (laughs) um until then take care um rest up and uh we hope to see you next time Goodbye.